Genesis Foundation. Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dub Lab. Hosted by Paul Holden Graber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Listen in to part two. Hello to our listeners and welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, presented by Onassis LA and Dub Lab. My name is Lena Herzog, Paul Holden Graber, the regular host of the program, asked me to guest host today. And I invited the acclaimed writer and director, Oliver Stone. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, Oliver. Oh, thank you, Lena. Good to be here. You just arrived uh, back to Los Angeles from France. Were you in, at the festival in Cannes? I was. How did it go? It was fun. It was great to rediscover movies. I hadn't been there in a few years. See things full screen, full, with appreciative audiences clapping. <laughs> 10-minute applauses. I saw three or four films, and uh, it was quite... It was like the return of movies again. Right. It was exciting. Were the, were the theaters full? Absolutely. Every one of them. Every time I went, anyway. Maybe it was just for the red carpet events, but right. uh, my documentary showed on JFK uh, Revisited. That right. showed in a smaller theater, and that was jammed. And we had three screenings there. It was exciting. And there's a mood in the air. It's just, uh, you know, the Mediterranean, the weather was good. People right. were out to see movies all day long. And they missed it. They must have missed the getting together and watching movies sure, together. Sure, that was the that was a thrill to right. feel the surge of excitement in the audience. The, the Palme d'Or winner, Titan, was a, yeah. it was a strange, very strange exotic movie, very sexual, very perverse. and. It was stunning to sit there with 2,000 people and see that, right. and they all responded. I mean, people are mixed, of course, but the response was enthusiastic, and movies are back, that kind of a feeling. <laughs> and uh, the French love movies, and it, yes. if you, gee, you know, we really do miss it. I mean, we just cannot have blockbusters. I mean, we all know blockbusters are important, but that's not the only form of movie making. There's got to be something in between, and that's what Cannes represents. Uh, more cinema, independent cinema, call it, yeah. Right, right. Well, so you just finished the film and you came with it to the festival, right? You yes. finished it during the pandemic? Yeah. yeah, I also had the strange privilege of watching, J they, they, it's the 30th anniversary of JFK, right. the movie, 1991, and they were showing that on the beach at night at they start at 10 o'clock. Oh, great. And I'm talking the beach is a gigantic screen. And wow. the, the audience was deep, five, 600 people. And of course, you know, me as a filmmaker, I was in the first row, so I was a little too, too, close. too washed out for my taste. And <laughs> the sound was hard to hear in the first row. But it was exciting to see it outdoors. But unfortunately, just as the movie was peaking in the third act, the Italian-English soccer final in Europe was going on. And from the distance, we could hear all the Italians honking their horns, the going cheering. crazy. Yeah. I think they won. Yeah, so that kind of, that's what happens in circuses. It's that's a, right. What Khan is is a three-ring circus, and, yeah. and it's fun. Right, right. Well, you, you also uh, wrote a book 
um, was it during the pandemic, or did you did you write it before and finished it during the pandemic? I, I finished. I was editing it during the pandemic, but uh, yes, yeah. it took me two years. It's called Chasing the Line, and right. I turned my focus on myself, which I haven't done in my films. So this was my, I guess some filmmakers like Truffaut or Fellini, they, they get to do films about their lives. This one I said, okay, I'll do it about my life, but this is about me. This is in a book form. Right. I don't have to do it as a movie because you're kind of naked in a movie. And also it's difficult to right. do it in a two-hour version. In a book form, you, you can take your, you can really give each, each episode in your life that matters the weight that it deserves. I love this book. It's absolutely a compulsive read. Oh, thank and you. I'm hoping that there will be a next one, a sequel, so to speak. Um, You've been a hard-working man on your, all your life. I mean, not only screenwriter and filmmaker, as everyone knows you, but English teaching in Saigon, a wiper on the ship, a waiter in LA, and then, of course, screenwriter, producer, and best known as director of many great films. But I uh, found out from this book that uh, your first hire was from your father. <laughs> when uh, uh, you were just five or six years old, and for a quarter, in the early 1950s, that was a lot, you had to deliver two, three pages of writing about anything you wanted. Yeah. A story, an essay of sorts, you wrote a novel at Yale then, yeah. and dropping out of Yale, you finished the story in New York, right? Oh yeah, yeah, that was a painful period. But my father, by the way, it was the early 1950s. A quarter yes. went a long way. And I, yes. I would go with a quarter, I would buy a classic comic, which was a, an illustrated comic very, of, of, the, of the classics. Mark, yeah. Mark Twain, uh, Dumas, uh, you know, the, the famous writers of that time. Did that affect you, these of comics? Of course. The, the storytelling? That, that was my literary education, so to right. speak. Right. Do you still I, have those? I can never claim to have. No, I don't. They, they vanished. Oh. But they're great comics, and they were. It's moral lessons in life, you know. Right. Uh, Walter Scott, Ivanhoe, all the, all the classics that we were famous, people would read in the 19th century were illustrated beautifully. My dad would give me, but also I would make up stories that were based on television that I saw. I cannot, you know, I was watching television like every American kid. So yeah. You, cavalry versus Indians, you know. I, I, I who felt, were you, on, uh, on whose side were you, the well, Indians or the cavalry? At the beginning, certainly the cavalry, because I was raised that way. Right. But later in my life, I became more the scout who was between the two sides. It's uh, interesting because, you know, when we played cowboys and Indians, nobody wanted to be a cowboy. Is that right? In Germany? No, in, in Russia. In Russia, yeah. yeah. That That's where I grew sense. up. Yeah. Nobody wanted to be a cowboy. Everybody wanted to be the Indian. Well, I played the Indian, too, quite a, quite a few times. I like to get killed. I guess it was a masochism. <laughs> but I don't know if it's a masochism. I think it's whose side are you on? Um, but you, you know... Out, you find out as you go in life. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, it's interesting. Your, your book is called Chasing the Light. Well, one of the most moving moments in this book is in fact a scene that happens in a twilight, as I could see it, between living and dead. Now your, your mother, uh, Jacqueline, was French, and that side, that uh, French side of you, you would um, uh, go uh, every year to France and spend time with uh, her parents and your beloved Meme. And um, it's um, your, your description of Meme your grandmother, how you called her, that extraordinary love. She called you l'Américain, 
the American. And then one day um, she was gone. You rushed to try to reach her and you missed. And um, at the deathbed of your grandmother, uh, you came to her apartment in the suburb of Paris to say goodbye. She uh, died before you arrived. And it's in this extraordinary moment in your book, you speak with her and in your mind, you speak with her in your mind, she already passed away. But the conversation doesn't stay between you two. Others, uh, the other departed souls who matter to you arrive on the scene and you join this conversation. Could you read a passage? Yes, I'm quite familiar with that passage. Uh, 30, you see, you have to frame this correctly. Right. In those days in France, if you were Catholic, they could lay out your body and there would be no authorities coming in. You could lay out your body for three days, four days right. in, in an apartment uh, and you could, you would give a chance for the relatives who lived at a distance to come and visit yes. the, the one they loved. So they didn't bury them right away or put them in a hospital. And so right. it was a different time and uh, that was a French habit. And I think it's a beautiful habit because it gives you a chance to spend some time with the dead. Yes. Uh, at this time, I was 30 years old, and I was, as the book begins, when I'm 30 and I'm broke and I'm depressed, and I've been trying to be a screenwriter. I went to film school and studied diligently, and everything. I tried everything jobs, I drove taxis, got, was married, and my marriage had fallen apart. Everything had gone to the, into the dumps. So I was very, very low. I felt like a failure in life. So it begins here. I'm in the, I'm, I'm at her. I'm at her bed, she's, she's there, lying there in front of me in this Paris apartment. I'm alone with her for an hour, two hours. I could cry myself dry with self-pity, all this pain, so much pain. Yes, I feel it now, feel sorry for myself, it's okay, so raw. All my lies, my embarrassment, naked for the dead to see, naked to the whole world. No one loves me, no one will ever love me, because I can't love anyone except you, Mimi. And you're gone now. Can I, can I learn to love? How can I start? By just being kind, like you were? Can I be kind to myself? Can I learn to love myself? In my mind, I heard Mimi reply, try. You're a man now. You're no longer 17, sitting on the sidelines of your life, judging. You've seen this world, tasted its tears. Now's the time to recognize this Oliver, Oliver, Oliver. My name invoked three times to rouse myself, to wake myself from this long slumber. Do something with your life, I demanded. All this energy bottled up for years, hopeless dreaming and writing. No excuse, you can do better. Stop fucking around. Mimi continued speaking to me so gently. That soft voice, mon chéri, mon petit Oliver, tu fais pas de souci pour rien, tous mes bêtises, mes soucis, à quoi ça sert? Regarde-moi maintenant comme je suis. My darling, my little Oliver, don't be miserable for nothing. All my worries, what good did it do me? Look at me now, the way I am. I looked and saw nothing but her silence. In it was her answer. Fais ta vie, fais ce que tu veux faire. C'est tout ce que, c'est tout ce qu'il y a. Je t'embrasse, je t'adore, je t'adore. Make your life, do what you have to do. That's all there is, I embrace you. I adore you. The other shades were approaching now, smelling the blood. So many young men groaning, they envied me. I thought I saw Elias among them, but wasn't sure. Others I barely recognized. 
limbs, faces distorted in death. There was whispering, many voices. Stone, hey man, don't forget. Don't forget me, where you going? Give me some, hey. Tell my girl you saw me, will ya? Remember me, will ya? You got a joint? Mimi wanted me to go, quickly, before it was too late. I couldn't hear, but it was clear what the shades were saying. We the dead are telling you, your lifespan is short. Make of it everything you can, before you're one of us. This is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That came, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, acknowledgement of Greek myth in the, in the book. Uh, in fact, in Vietnam, I link it to the Odyssey and the, uh, and the Iliad. Uh, and Vietnam, to me, seemed somewhat like the Iliad because it was a useless war. Both sides, I mean, the American side was fighting amongst themselves as much as they were fighting against them. And uh, there was a sense of futility about it. And then the return home, of course, is almost as long as the war because it takes guys a long time to come back from that war. It felt, it felt like a period of hopelessness. And, uh, but what is striking is that you were open to these voices. You heard them. And you bring up your sergeant, Elias, yeah. the Apache from Arizona, yeah. um, whom you loved and uh, who died. You later s describe how you go um, and find his name and you touch the stone and run your fingers where his name is. You know he existed. So these voices and these silences, you hear them, you're open to them, and yet you forge ahead. They don't hold you back. It's like as if they're wind into your, in your sails. In a sense, uh, Elias, who existed, he's a true soldier. He was killed over there, the way it's described in the book. Yes. Uh, Juan Elias. And I actually found his name on the uh, Vietnam Wall, the memorial, the memorial in, Washington, in Washington, which Washington. was in a strange way, reality, uh, basis of reality. He, he inspired the platoon, which is the first screenplay I, I wrote with success, of success. Uh, he was at the core of that story. If you see the, if you yes. see the movie, remember it. Of course. It was this young recruit, sort of me, in between two sergeants in this platoon. One is a severe man, a great soldier, Barnes. Another one is, a, is also a great soldier, Elias. And they go in conflict with each other, a primal conflict about, about lying, about what, being dishonest. There was an immorality in that war. I called it, there were three lies in Vietnam, three significant lies. One was the amount of civilian uh, damage, the, the, the killing that we did of civilians in Vietnam. And the, in a village scene in the movie, uh, Barnes killed someone in cold blood and Elias takes him to task for it and reports him, and it becomes a war crime situation. Yes. And in, as a result of which, uh, Barnes does kill Elias. This is a dramatized moment. I didn't see this, but this right. is going on. There was a lot of problems in Vietnam. But there was a, he kills Elias, and of course, the rest of the movie plays out with the young man coming of age, trying to deal with this sin, this, this violence. He ends up taking revenge for Elias. Um, but before these lies are flying around like bullets, you don't know where they're flying from, uh, first was the original lie. Why America needed to go there in the first place. That was the biggest lie of all. And did you believe it? 
that's why I, you want to... I believed to... it totally at the time. I, you, it's the way I grew up. I was, I was uh, grew up with on the, you call it the right wing, right side of the equation. My father had been a, a soldier in World War II and was an intelligent man, but definitely, as many Americans did, the majority of Americans bought into the idea that this was a war against communism. It was an ideological war and it had to be defeated. And Southeast Asia was one of the dominoes, they called the word dominoes, that would fall to communism if, unless we fought in Indonesia and in Vietnam, these places. So, yes. Did you believe that, that the Viet Cong was going to disembark in San Diego any moment if you didn't go there? Because a lot of Americans did. I can't say that. I literally believe that. <laughs> but certainly that was a mentality. And I volunteered for the draft because, I did. frankly, I could not stand my own... I did not want to stay with my generation of young men at Yale University at that time because something was wrong, and I don't know what it was, but it was an entitlement that I didn't like. I, ironically, George Bush, George W. Bush was in my class right. at Yale in the class of 68. And, um, was it that it was too cushy? Was it, it was too cushy and too entitled. I, I so it was a lie, in a way. I didn't know what the answer was, but I knew right. that I didn't. I wasn't comfortable with it, and I needed to find my own truth. So I disembarked. I left there, and I, three years later, I ended up in the military. I became a teacher first, and then wrote Marine, and then travels, and then I wrote a book. I, it's all in this book. You get a sense of it, and the dis, the uh, dislocation, the alienation of a young man which I find is typical of an 18, 19-year-old, whether a woman or man, I think that's, it's still going on. I see it all the time, but in those days, it was very hard to express it because it was not, young people were not given much space. It was not accepted to be, uh, to express yourself like that. It was sort of a, you were considered odd or weird or something indulgent. And of course, I was raised strictly disciplined and uh, it was hard to break out of that discipline. It took a lot, actually, a, a lot of breakdown to get out of that discipline. But I had a strange uh, suspicion that perhaps you became awake to the way original lies are told yeah, well, after your parents' yeah, divorce, exactly and you call it the original lie. Am I, am I can I right? see all this in, in, in retrospect. I could right. not see it at the time. I was of in the lie. Of course, one never does. I was in the lie. I bought all this business about America, fighting communism. My father was political and economic. He was a man of the world. He very strong opinions. He wrote letter. Uh, he wrote a monthly letter and was very respected. Of course, I respected my father. That led to this discovery that my parents' marriage, which I thought was perfect, which I thought was an idyllic marriage, they were a happy, happy couple. Uh, and I was the only child, so it made my little world the three the three people was perfect. Right. And when that fell apart with lies, because they were obviously not meant for each other. They had been lying. Uh, she, he had been lying to her. Uh, he'd been committing adultery after adultery, which was acceptable in those terms of the 1950s America, 60s America. That was the way it was in, in the East Coast, anyway, in New York City. Anyway, when that was found out, it just bro it broke apart. There was all these, it was a violent, uh, not, not physically, but it was a very rough, uh, divorce and sudden. I didn't know anything about it. I was told about it in boarding school one day, shockingly, and uh, 16 years of my life kind of out the window. It was like a lie. The whole thing had been a lie. My family... But I, then perhaps that also um, 
made you capable of seeing original lies. So when I saw, and I saw it several times, your untold history of the United States. Yeah. And um, for me, uh, along with uh, Howard Zinn's The History of the People of the United States, that is the history. Yeah. And it is, um, and I, I'll tell you why I think so. Is I think that um, it's probably a banal truth that history is written by the winners, for the winners. And since they're winners, they can tell whatever they want. Yeah. And they tend to tell self-serving lies, or at least skew the truth to flatter themselves. Absolutely. And it is the vit victims, should they survive, should be, they be alive, um, they're the ones whose memory lasts and whose memory is very stark. I agree with you. I think this is, uh, I think it was best said by Harold Pinter, the playwright, the British playwright, who. In his, he won the Nobel Prize, and in his speech, it was in the 2006 or 2007 era, said very clearly, it was a beautiful speech, he said it was the greatest act of hypnosis he'd ever seen in world history. Right. That America is pulled on the world, this public relations coup. And you have to remember that America is very good at public relations. We don't, people forget how good we are at this. We created Madison Avenue. We created PSYOPs, they called yes. it in war, which is a method by which you propagandized in a war. We did everything we could to change the thinking of the Vietnamese people during that war, and it didn't do any good. We spent a fortune, as we're still, and we're doing that still all over the world, from in Europe and Asia. We are, are all our agencies of government are, are working there, putting out this uh, fabrication that the United States is this democracy uh, concerned with humanism and human rights and so forth and so on. But it's all to the benefit of. The government the system. to the democ to the system that has to be spread as spread around the world because it ensures its continuance. Do you think that all these cascades of lies? I mean, if you look at um, the history, especially the history of wars, there has to be an original lie. And I, <laughs> I, I, I've got to tell you that to get we'll get back to the original lie. I was. Uh, I was shooting in Spain, uh, f photographing for my first two books, right when the uh, United States went to war with the so-called, in quotation, coalition of the willing. And when I was leaving Seville, uh, my friends called me and they said, you know, something very strange. There are more people on the streets of Seville protesting Iraq war than they're living uh, in Seville, that are registered living in Seville. And, I, and they said, you have to come back and photograph it. This is really strange. And I thought, what a strange thing Seville did, because it's really a party town. They don't go demonstrating about politics. They have a fiesta after 11 o'clock until mm. morning. Then my friends in London tell me, you know, there are at least several million people on the streets, and we're in front of Westminster, and we're yelling at Westminster. There's a roar at Westminster. Actually, John le Carré describes it. He was, he was there as well, along with my friends. My friends in New York called me and said, oh my God, this is amazing. You have to come photograph uh, these demonstrations in New York. There's several million. Well, I was already in LA. I went to Los Angeles. And uh, I mean, it was an ocean of people. And if you read the media, or if you looked at the media, it was as if it wasn't there. Yes. It, it was just not there. I remember that time vividly, and I remember reading about these gigantic protests in Australia, in Italy, in England, 
And in America, there were big protests. I don't know how big they were, but they were significant. And they were buried in this, underneath the media's carpet, which was shocking to me. At least, the, well, at least the American media, I can't speak. The American for, media, for sure. I can't speak for the European media. Yes. Uh, and it was, it was clear that Bush Jr. would get his way. He wanted a war, and he would get it. And that was where executive power, it, it was tyranny, because it was executive power saying, we want war, and we will have it. So they used every method they could to get it, psyops, and above all, lying to the intelligence agencies, lying to the people, telling them that there was weapons of mass destruction around the corner. And, and so let's forth. not forget that they connected Iraq to 9-11, which and was after that they <laughs> a, a staggering lie. A staggering lie, yeah, and you get away with it. It shows you that the bigger the lie, <laughs> the, more, the more likely it can be accepted, the bigger the lie. But I also think that one of the things that's really, really scary is that uh, after concocting the lie, they begin to believe it. It's not just yeah, hypnosis yeah, on people, it's yeah. also self-hypnosis, it's self-mesmerism. That's correct. And the young people start signing up to get revenge. They, they, go to, they join the Marines or they join the Air Force, whatever, because they feel upset that their country was invaded and so forth and so on. Although, honestly, for America to act, for the United States to act like an oppressed nation in this matter is unbelievably absurd. Uh, and that was, a, that was that is a formula that works. We're oppressed by the Arab uh, community who dislike our freedom. Those kind of propaganda thinking goes seeps into the blood. Do you think 9/11 uh, was reversed? It was turned into a cause for it's us against them for us to attack the world, and we did in fact. And destroyed the Middle East. I would say destabilize it. I don't think we're going to destroy the Middle East because I don't think it's destroyable. I think it's a very it's an old culture. Resilience. It's going to last for a long time. Persia is not going away. And no. Thank God because it's a rich culture. But my God, the Americans have acted like barbarians in this matter. But I mean, the Gulf of Tonkin, the Iraq War, and WMD. Why don't you go back further? Why don't you go back to where I started my book? That's right. The JFK killing. The JFK killing, and and of course where you started the uh, uh, untold history, which is the lie about World War II and Hiroshima well, and Nagasaki. That's an, I guess that's true. You should start with and the Korea line. and Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, things that we've done Latin America, Middle East, Eastern Europe, yeah. um, and. Um, and all of this cascade of lying, I'm curious, do you think it all, the, they all, this cascade goes into a chasm opened by an original lie? Because I think America is an empire in denial of being an empire. And this is the most foundational lie. There is a, I've thought a lot about this, Lena. It's a very, very th thorough question and it should be answered by serious historians. And unfortunately in America, we haven't had that. I have had no experience of reading historians except for occasionally the Howard Zinns, the William Appleby, Michael Williams, Parenti. Michael Parenti, absolutely, uh, who are questioning this. Now, for yeah. example, I found out through my research in untold history in the United States with Peter Kuznick, who's a professor and been teaching American history for 30 years at the American University. He brought me to the realization that World War II is always pictured as the American War. And it was the greatest generation. It's when we, America really kicks in and starts an empire. That's what I was told. But the truth is we know now, if we do any kind of scholarship, that the Russians won World War II. They won it with, with sacrifice and with sheer, 
sheer fighting. They beat the guts out of the German war machine. They, they took... Churchill said that, didn't he? Yeah, but the facts are that, you know, four-fifths of the... Uh, of the German war machine were, were chopped up in in Europe in Eastern Europe by, by the, the Russians. Russians. That's and right. And the other fifth was uh, the other fifth was taken care of by us. We came late to the war with the English and the. And, yeah. Uh, so I mean, right there you have a huge fracture. But it's not the beginning. It's it, no. it does lead to the Cold War, and there's a misunderstanding. Although you have to say many Americans were sympathetic and empathetic to the Russian cause at that time. Many, but they were many of them were pounded and, and, and uh, scared off by the, the Hoovers of the world, the FBI, started investigations well, the, of, the, of the Ho- Americans. Well, Hoover, uh, he had a blacklist of um, uh, anti-fascists before the Second oh, World yeah. War. And then they were called, after the war, premature anti-fascists. And what is interesting is that they stayed on the blacklist. Yeah. Now that is an astonishing thing. Well, there's a lot of astonishing things. I, I don't. The also there was a gray list, which is even more dangerous in some ways. The black list was bad enough. Right. But the gray list continues for 20 years, 15 years. People as late as in, as late as the late 50s in America are being uh, denied work because That's of right. their because of their views. So I mean, but it doesn't start there. If you really think about it, you have to go further back. Yes. You have to think about Woodrow Wilson in World War One. Right. Declaring that the same kind of talk that you're either with us or against us, America is the beacon of democracy, is the the, the, the 13 points, the uh, the concept that the world is responding to America as the savior of World War One, you know. But that story worked. It it certainly convinced many Americans to go to war. But many Americans saw through that, and they of course attacked World War One and the profit making that they saw in World War One. So that even that story goes back in time. And then you get into the issues of Woodrow Wilson's idea of segregation was a good thing. And then that takes us back into the slavery issue, which right. is, of course, a fundamentally American issue of racism. And it goes back in time. And then you go back to, you go past the black uh, American experience into the Indian American experience. Of course, which is, the foundation. Foundation. I don't even know if it's the foundation, but it's certainly the first uh, robbery. You know, it's the first thing that is a lie because we never heard about this in school. That's it was right. always the, uh, you know, Pocahontas and, and John right. Smith. Uh, but and the Indian was a noble savage, could be a noble savage, but at the same time he had to be tamed in, from the wilderness and brought into civilization. So yes, that goes back. But then you have to go further back than that, and you go back to the Spanish. And you go back to their concept of slavery, and you go back to the Arab concept of slavery, you find it from the beginning of mankind has been an enslavement of other people. It's been the use of, of force to conquer others. And you get into the whole issue of what is human being. You know, you go back to Cain and Abel. So, I mean, it doesn't end. But where does an empire begin? The American empire didn't begin there. It began with the British. Right. The British Empire began with some far-fetched idea of what the Roman Empire was. Right. And the Roman Empire is a fraud, too, by the way. Yes. And Michael Perenni has pointed that out, I think, very, very, very well in his histories. So the Roman Empire, you have these rich people in Rome basically running the show and, and benefiting from slavery, benefiting from oppressing the poor, and that goes on through history. And then you get these fictions like, you know, the fictions that Parenti writes about, like people like the, the great democracies of Rome run by uh, Cicero and so forth. But that's bullshit. Of course. You find out some, so where does it all end? It, it's a lies, 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 lies. We seem to need lies to live. But we also seem to need the truth as well. 
I do. <laughs> yes. And I also think that uh, in terms of violence, um, we, when we look at, the hist at history and we say, well, history is full of violence because we all are preternaturally uh, violent. Well, we are many things. And I think that the problem is that violence is the domain of those who have initiative. Violent people, they have the initiative. Well, I agree with that. And I have also, and in the book, I write about violence in me. I mean, right. I, when I first started as a screenwriter, they said, oh, Midnight Express, these films, Conan the Barbarian, right. Scarface are violent. And I was accused of violence over unnatural born killers. Yes. And I admitted to it. I said, yeah, I am violent. I said, because there is a reality to it. Violence is a way of life. We need violence. But you also knew this and you acknowledged it without self-flattery and self-mythologizing because you went to war, you saw violence, and you had to commit violence because you were a soldier and you were a grunt That's and the infantryman. You saw it from the ground. Yes. So you, had, you didn't have the privilege of the officers to <laughs> flatter yourself about what is it all about. Or uh, the privilege of the pilots in Virginia that, you know, bomb a wedding or two well, from so far away. John McCain comes to mind. He was always a violent man, the senator, and he was able to bomb from a distance. He sang but about it. I was it. down on the ground and I saw the results bomb, of bomb, the bomb. And obviously that makes a difference. Perhaps that was the best thing I ever did in my life was to go to Vietnam. You know, maybe that was a basis for me to find the truth. That's right. And from there I've been able to work my way back. The problem is that Violence is in all of us, and not all of us, but let's say a good part of the people who are born tomorrow, the young kids are going to have violence in them because it's, look at the American system. We have war games, we have war fantasies, we have toys, video games that are unbelievably realistic. Yeah. I can see you can get excited about it. I even go to, I still go to movies with violence, and in my way, I, although I'm aware of it, I enjoy the, you know, okay, it's exciting. A fantasy, but it's, it's exciting. I'm glad there's a, there's a shootout here, and the good guys win, the bad guys lose. You know, it's, there is an atavistic impulse in us that enjoys it. I don't buy into it. I, I, when I see because you know the difference. I know you know the truth of violence. I know that other people do sometimes. Well, that's because it's a caricature. And it's interesting. I mean, I'm completely fascinated by this story of uh, John Hersey's uh, essay, Hiroshima, printed in The New Yorker. Because one of the strangest things is that the editors had to do essentially a clandestine operation, pretend that there was another issue being run in the parallel office. And they, in secret, um, yeah, Wally Sean, there's a book that just recently came out last year, I, I'll, I have to give it to you, um, called The Fallout. And, uh, and it's a fascinating thing. Why is it that they had to be so secretive about it? And because it was known um, immediately that the uh, United States exploded the nuclear bomb. But what was it about that essay that came out a year later in The New Yorker that uh, uh, had to be so secret and kept secret until it was published and already on the stands? And the reality was because it humanized the victims. Yeah. It made them human. It made Japanese human. Yeah. And that was not allowed. And that was a shock. And, and, the, and John Hersey's essay, this extraordinary um, work, which was not only extraordinary writing, but extraordinary um, work of truth, that rattled uh, United States. Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, I think that if a work of art can make a difference, it was one of those rare moments 
way did make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm actually kind of obsessed about three films. One is The Battle of Algiers. Mm-hmm. Another one, Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. And the third one, uh, Le Chagrin et la Pitié, The Sorrow and the Pity. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, I always, I kept thinking, every time uh, somebody wants to go to war, they have to be chained and watch these on a loop so that they know uh, yeah. how the world might end, yeah. what it means for the people on the ground, as in Battle of Algiers, and uh, um, how they're lying to themselves, because what is Le Chagrin Le Pitié, The Sorrow and the Pity? It's, it's a story of how people lie themselves into oblivion. Yeah. And what is fascinating is to see how thoroughly the narrative has been patrolled. Uh, for example, you certainly know the story of Gary Webb, who uh, did the story on CIA allied with Contras yeah. in cocaine trafficking. And an apparent uh, suicide managed to shoot himself twice in the head. <laughs> um, uh, journalists Seymour Hirsch, Bob Shear, Chris Hedges, Aaron Martyr, Stephen Cohen, even Phil Donahue have been essentially kicked out of the American mainstream. Uh, what do they have in common? They came out against the uh, Iraq war. Were they right? They were right. They stayed on the blacklist. And the editors uh, and, the, and the people who were against them are still in the editing. That's right. P- power positions. And if you look, and then, then I started thinking about it, and I was, and I have to say, uh, part of it was uh, Iraq war and seeing demonstrations and not seeing them anywhere in the media that kind of really brought home something that I read in 1988 while I was still a student in Russia studying linguistics, languages and literature and uh, stumbling on uh, Noam Chomsky and manufacturing consent. But to really understand what it meant, but, you know, that was in Iraq. I just want to point out one thing, it's relative, but they were mentioned in the U.S. media. They were, but they have this... It was a footnote. Not, they were not No, it wasn't a footnote. They were in, in the pages of the newspapers. But after the second one and the third one, then they, it becomes somewhat repetitive to the mind, so they, they disappear into the inner pages. And before you know it, 100,000 people is not really much. When you think, I mean, in the way the numerologies work, 100,000 people show up on a protest, but they say there was 200,000, but we're not sure. You know, that kind of... To, uh, debating about it. You make it into an issue like the numbers. And the before- it was not never about why they were there. Never why really, were people no. it was, it there? Was, it was a f- you know, those numbers were huge compared to what happened even in the Vietnam War. We didn't right. have those big numbers against the war until right. later in the... In, until much later. Much later. Yeah, so, you know, these are big numbers and they were big numbers in the beginning of the Iraq War. But because there was this consensus in the Washington structure between the media and the power structure to go to war in Iraq. That is to say, it, there was this intense feeling after 2001 that something had to be done to reorder the world. Right. To become Americans, American. And I think this a Pax, what Kennedy called a Pax Americana. Kennedy warned about all this stuff. Everything that happened in his, has happened after him, if you think about why yes. he was killed. I've tried to bring that up again and again to the, in Khan, I was talking about it to the press because my documentary goes into the motive for the killing. Remember, he was the last warrior for peace. That's right. He really went out on a limb, although he could only go so far in his first term, he was looking for a second term. 
but he was trying to stop the thing in Vietnam. He was withdrawing. He was making a detente with Soviet Union. He, him and Khrushchev were getting along. They signed a nuclear treaty, which had never been signed before between these two countries. He was a detente with Cuba. He was working in Africa for peace. Everywhere in the world, everything was reversed. If you look at the, actually what happened, the moment he was killed, Lyndon Johnson changed everything. Yeah. And they say in history, the American historians who are phony, yes. who are not scholars, say that Johnson continued what Kennedy was doing and there was no big deal. Nonsense. Them. That is rubbish. Absolute rubbish. rubbish. And I'm trying to, that's one of the history points that you try to, in your lifetime at least, to object to. It's one good thing I've done in my life is object to some of these stories. I may sound like a fool, but I've got to reiterate that point. It's up to us to change the history. It's up to people like us to call it out, and I admire those journalists you mentioned. They're out there with their megaphones and their microphones, and they're writing these pieces. At least they're pointing up the inconsistencies of these lies. They were made to pay. But what, is, what seems to be fascinating to me, it's not just the journalists, but it's a pattern. If you look at, for example, civil rights leaders, you know, in the past few years, when uh, Russia became back again their favorite bête noire, the reds and the reds, everybody was a Kremlin agent all of a sudden. I decided to put it to, into historical perspective and um, created a folder. It's on my desktop, if anybody wants to know, um, who were called Kremlin agents in their lifetime. And the list is long. I, I just have here a short one. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela on the US terror list, Iranian leader Mossadegh, an aristocrat who wanted his country resources to go to his people was called a communist as well. Allende in Chile assassinated Castro, many attempts of his life. Lula, Hugo Chavez, virtually all anti-colonial liberation movement leaders and members and cultural figures. And needless to say, Snowden and Assange were called Kremlin agents. Also Black Panthers, Red Brigades in Italy were called Kremlin agents. They weren't, uh, but everywhere in the media, including, in, by the way, in Europe, they were called Kremlin agents. They never were. Presidents and political figures, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was constantly accused of being a Kremlin agent in media during his lifetime. JFK, RFK in our time, Bernie Sanders, Jill Stein, Tulsi Gabbards, Jeremy Corbyn, incongruously Trump, and also in what? What Trump incongruously as well, yeah, okay, <laughs> as yeah. joined that actually illustrious uh, list um, yeah. which is kind of awkward. Um, and also music and film stars, Beatles, <laughs> were called Kremlin agents. I kid you not, I, I, I found uh, uh, articles, stories about that. Bob Marley. And this isn't just McCarthyism era. Uh, no. Gabriel Garcia Marquez was a persona non grata in the United States, not allowed to enter the country because of his anti-colonial views and uh, for not loving what the United States did in Latin America. Nearly half of Hollywood during McCarthy at the time, writers, directors, actors, playwrights, university professors, teachers, union leaders, union members. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And only one thing they had in common, they presented a challenge to the to the system by revealing what the system was by speaking about it. If they were journalists, if they were, um, you know, um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X point blank called yeah. the system for what it was, um, they essentially were either assassinated um, or blacklisted or graylisted. And yeah. they, it was, it's, it's actually an extraordinary thing to see it in perspective internationally and in time. In, in, in space and in time. 
Having been called a useful idiot more than once uh, myself. Yeah, you know this well. Uh, I, you know, I object to that. I'm not a useful idiot. I'm a thinking man, and I have made my mind up through life from experience, and I have a lot more experience than most of the people who call me a useful idiot, who are, exactly. somewhat, who are somewhat pompous in there. You know, it's easy to stand behind a pen and write something about somebody, attack them. You know, ad hominem attacks is what they always do. They never bring up the issues that you're raising. That's right. They attack you. They, they, they don't really even dare to attack the work. You they can, just you, attack you, Most of the people the who say that I'm an idiot who softballs with Putin and was fawning over him have never even seen any of the four hours. Exactly. There's a, it's, a, it's an equal relationship, at least that's the way I feel. And I'm not, a, as a director of films, I'm used to being in charge. But in this case, I'm certainly in a dialogue, and a dialogue means you cede control too. To your, you have to listen to the party you're talking to. So it's a 50-50 deal, but you're always struggling to, to reassert the, the, the narrative, to reassert the tension. It's, but it's, you, you it's, have the, it's same. the responsibility of a movie director also. Right. But didn't you have the same with Castro and with yeah, Hugo Chavez? Totally yeah, the same. Always the always same charge. A sense of equality and talking freely, yes. telling them what I thought. Now this, to me, is a true danger because, after all, um, we have weapons that uh, can easily destroy the world. I mean, omnicide is <laughs> seriously is a possibility, and I have a feeling that the danger is now more than ever because mutually assured destruction only worked when people still knew the fear of war yeah. and when also they had some sort of check on themselves. They knew the world and they knew themselves. And so they had the media that was that check. Now, yeah. since they were so incredibly efficient in wiping them out and uh, clearing the field for themselves, they actually have engaged in this uh, self-hypnosis and self-mesmerism. Self-mesmerism. It's really self-mesmerism on a scale that's kind of hard to describe. It's frightening, especially from people like you, I mean, who are Russian and who come here and become totally anti-Russian. It's amazing that you're one of the few Russians I've met who actually can look at the modern Russia and see it in realistic light, not like with some fantasy glasses as an enemy. Because I go back. Because you go back. I go back. And most of the Russians who came, they were propelled by many injustices that um, yeah. Russia did commit yes. to its own people, more than anyone, its own people. Yeah. I mean, half of my family was uh, eradicated during Stalin's purges. Another <laughs> big uh, chunk of family perished during Second World War. Mm -hmm. My grandparents were lucky, and I'm lucky that they were lucky, because otherwise I wouldn't be here. Uh -huh. Because uh, my grandfather and my... Well, it's good that you're speaking out, because you're one of the few who's Russian who can actually say that. Right. But the... I, I mean, part of me is uh, uh, terrified. I mean, actually, you know, when I heard recently a senator from Alaska, Senator Gravel, yeah. passed away. Yeah. And I saw some of the old recordings of him uh, when he's speaking to, you know, Hillary Clinton and Mitt Romney and a few of these mm -hmm. people who are just like really uh, f fantastically uh, fascinated and uh, gung-ho about yet another war. Yeah. And Senator Gravel said, you people scare me. Yeah. And they cackle in response. Yeah. And this is a truly, truly terrifying thought because yeah. I don't believe that they have any check on them and in perception because mad, you know, cynics say that, optimists say that it was negotiations between two nuclear powers. Yeah. 
that saved us from Omnicide, from the nuclear all-out war. They say it was the um, negotiations and disarmament. Skeptics and cynics say it was mad, mutually assured destruction. Because once... It still is. Yeah, but I think that more than anything, it was in the head. Because mad only works if all sides know the risk and the danger. It doesn't work if you're in a state of self-mesmerism. That's what was, I think, scary about Trump, because he was talking loosely about nuclear first strike. You know, I mean, it's basically, that's what America has never given up, the idea of first strike superiority. In other words, having enough to strike the first time and, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, not have, and being able to withstand the retribution. Right. That's always been, and that was a fundamental thing in, in Strange Love, the film you love, admire. Yes. And that was what was great about it. It really made us aware of how scary a proposition Matt is, and it only works insofar as you don't outthink it, because you can outthink Mad and say, I can beat the other guy if I can take 5 million casualties instead of uh, 200 million. That's right. Well, and... and this I, is the way Trump thinks. But also people um, within the system think that way. And, right. and the combination of the uh, financialization of the system of war and the, f the fact that, that the war on the brink of omnicide is so bloody profitable... That's another factor that's is, huge. Is combined with the self-mesmerism. I, I mean, I think that the system just got its own dynamic. And I'm, I'm, I, these people really, like Senator Gravel said, these people really terrify me. In some ways, you know, I, I keep thinking to what Putin said about the American empire in 2001 when they withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile yeah. treaty, which was a very crucial treaty. Yes. So what America basically propositioned and has been doing since Reagan's day is really buying into this idea that you can put a dome around America and you can resist anything. A fantasy. Yeah. This is a very important, uh, uh, and a lot of people believe it, you see. They really start to believe it. Israel, for example, has put this dome around themselves and it seems to be working on a smaller country. It seems to be. So well, the, Russia I, is not PLO. But... They actually have hypersonic... Uh, well, that, that's what I was going to get to. I was going to say, all, <laughs> all, that, all those 40 years of planning for America to spend so much money on anti-ballistic missile defense, yes. right? A fortune, trillion dollars, I'd say, more. What happens that Putin comes in suddenly <laughs> a few years ago and he, and, and he shows us hypersonic uh, missiles and, and, and submarines and also Air, uh, air, air, air Force unbelievable speed of these missiles. And it seems to defeat the concept of anti-ballistic missile defense. Sure. So, although that continues to be an issue, and I, I'm, I don't know enough about the weaponry to know what's gonna work or not gonna work, but we're gonna get to that place where we're gonna test it. For example, the Americans, as you know, has, has moved in Europe completely. We've, we've stocked Europe with enough ballistic missile defense, right? right. So we believe that that'll be the first test ground. Uh, again, these people really scare me. Um, and I think that uh, I, I keep wondering, what is le mot juste? What is, the, what, is, what is it that can be said that can stop it? I, I, you know, can it be said that uh, your stocks will not exist because the world will not exist? That's a good, that's a good thing to say. You keep saying, keep saying it because there'll be no more, no more nothing. <laughs> there'll be no more world. 
there will <laughs> the world will be no more. And you know, um, when um, in WikiLeaks revealed Vault Seven and the software Marble, that essentially uh, created forensically untraceable attacks that could be redirected. Yeah. In and uh, uh, these attacks were written in Chinese and in Russian, obviously, by the CIA um, to make attribution uh, to China and Russia. And of course, now attribution. Pentagon uh, created in 2014 uh, the military doctrine that cyber attack can be uh, the cause for war, uh, the casus belli for war. Yeah. This is, and, and again, the difference between what happened before uh, when we knew and smelled the horror of war, yeah. I think we no longer do. And I, I, I just... Well, I know Russians do. Russians do. That's right. right. It's in their blood. It's in their DNA. Because so many died, 27 million. And young people like you still, those who respect the dead and respect the ancestors know that. Uh, although there's a whole new class of Russians, certainly influenced by American propaganda, who think who think in, in American ways, put it that way, or that uh, Russians are uh, oppressive and so forth and so on. But they miss the point of what's going on. Putin sees the point. America is strangling Russia, suffocating it, trying to. Well, it's, um, you know, if uh, Russia were to have a Monroe Doctrine, uh, uh, there would be a Cuban Missile Crisis sure. um, everywhere. But of course... Um, well, we've tried to do it economically, and now with NATO. Yes. And it's Ukraine, of course, is a whole issue, too. And all these factors, it's been... I do think that if the Russians did not have Putin, this is that they would have lost their patience a while ago. I think that it would have been a much more scary place That's if right. he had not been in office. I think he's one, knowing him personally, he's a very patient man and he sees like a chessboard. But if that thinking were to no longer be there, if he were someone else with a, let's say, not as intelligent or perhaps not as patient. Not as patient. And would appeal That's to right. the Russian nationalist side, that would be a much more difficult. It would be much more dangerous. And people forget that we made it by the skin of our teeth. <laughs> there were so many incidents, you know, geese flew over there, then geese flew over here. Yeah. Able Archer, Cuban Missile Crisis. It's a miracle we're still here. Well, there was the Black Sea incidents. That's right. I'm, I, there was one back in the day of the Ukraine crisis, before this new, new, new incidents, when the U.S. Uh, naval uh, ship was advancing in the Black Sea, that, that was shown in my documentary. So here we are, back again. But, uh, and now all of a sudden, uh, another uh, new Bête Noire, another monster, uh, another Reds under the beds, the Chinese now. Uh, and and uh, do you think it's sort of part of the psyche, part of the, um, yes. of the dynamic that America needs? Yes. An enemy. You know, it's so true. It's so I've seen it all my life. I grew up, you know, we were with it. I was terrified of Russians. Uh, honestly, the James Bond mentality was everywhere in America and Europe. And the Vietnamese? It was acceptable. Then, well, Vietnamese was a different strain. The Japanese? Yeah. Well, let's call it the Russian thing is what I grew up under. Right. So the Russians scared the shit out of me. I'm sorry. It took, it took, it took uh, <laughs> of course, I traveled to Russia in 1983. 
when yeah. the dissident movement was going, and I was still very strongly uh, scared of the Russian authoritarianism. And I thought the Brezhnev regime was awful, and the dissidents, I'd met with it was awful. 15 dissidents. It was awful. It was falling apart. It was. But when Gorbachev came in, I met him, and I actually thought, wow, there's something going on here. And it was going on. It was a renaissance. Of course, uh, Gorbachev couldn't keep the empire together the way it was, and whatever. It, a lot of things happened. We don't want to talk about that right now. But the point was, I got over my fear of Russia because by going there, meeting Gorbachev, and then going to Russia several times for films and this and that, and then uh, you understand that they are like us. They are human beings. But JFK said that too. Remember, Russians love their children too. Yeah, that beautiful speech, the peace speech. <laughs> it's such a strangely obvious thing to say, and yet it felt radical. And now we've gone back in this direction, and China too. We've provoked China no, no end. I mean, the Chinese have said this several times. They said, why is America doing this? You know, why are they needlessly aggressing us? Yes, China has problems, we've, but it has not shown the impulses of an empire that we did. It has not occupied foreign bases. It doesn't have bases. Well, the United States has over 1,000 bases in something like more than 70 countries. Uh, I don't know how many we have, but... Certainly. I think counting lily pads, it's about 1,000. Lily pads, huh? Okay. That's what they call yeah. them. No question that we've expanded Rentals. our role in Africa, South America, everywhere. We're shame what's going on because we have too much money. And the money is the issue. That's what's the corruption. But the money isn't too much. The money should be here. Well, it's... Education, we healthcare, society to rebuild yeah. the social bonds that America so desperately needs rebuilding. Because after all, uh, China will be uh, the most powerful nation, not because they poured a few sand piles in the Pacific. They are going to be like that because they took out 840 million people out of poverty and educated uh, their people. Yeah. And, um, and, that, and I, I'm still optimistic. I am, uh, I'm still optimistic about um, possibilities because I think, and this is something that I uh, believe may be rationally so about America, and I think you also have it in you. Um, optimism. We, yes, optimism, but also love America. We love this place. Yes. We really, really love this place. It is a beautiful country, yes. and, and it really <laughs> deserves better. And, and all this destruction, it's just not necessary. It shouldn't be there. You know, I remember when I um, was uh, when I wanted to have forbidden novels. I copied them by hand because I I just couldn't get my hands on some dot on these uh, underground things. So I would copy Master and Margarita, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by hand as a teenager. And I would have it in my rucksack and walk around and you know pray nobody finds me with a forbidden manuscript. And then from one day to the next. They were in the stores. Everybody read them. It, and history can change for the worse. It can go to omnicide. I can totally see that. But it can only change for the better. What could be that turning point? A possibility. The continuation of culture, of talking, of having people with free thinking ideas like, like we're having now and we're sharing them. Yeah. The continuation of talking, human, humaniz humanizing every situation we can. That's right. That's probably where it is. Making movies. Humanism. Making good movies, too. <laughs> Making, yes, a possibility. 
Thank you, Oliver Stone, for joining us on the quarantine sure. tapes. I've enjoyed this very much talking to you. So did we. Good luck to you, Lena. Thank you, Oliver. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support. 